My name is Milian Mori and welcome to our podcast, Warrior Family. We are a family of successful entrepreneurs, visioners, hustlers, and leaders. We are compassionate, loving, fearless, and determined. We fight for love, profits, and a better world. And this podcast was made for future leaders, entrepreneurs, world changers, and families all over the world. We gained our wealth by running one of the best network marketing companies in Europe and successfully coaching and speaking empire. Our stories, tips will show you that everything is possible. And this podcast includes all the best sales, marketing, relationship, personal growth, and health advice you can get and interviews with the most successful people in the world. Our motto is, my business is not my family. My family is my business. And we are here to show you how to have it all. Hello, my friends from Warrior Family. Today I have a special guest, uh, Eric Edmonds. He's a serial entrepreneur, international business speaker, author, husband, father, and kite surfer. Uh, his philosophy is that life is very important and he's dedicated to working with entrepreneurs like you, business owners, to help them achieve their full potential and create truly exceptional lives for themselves their, their families and employees. So welcome, Eric, to my show. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, you flew all the way from Dominican Republic. This is where you live right now. I, I, no, I actually, it was complicated. I was in Norway, and then I flew to the United States for some meetings, and then I flew to Ottawa, Canada, then I flew to New York, then I flew to here. It was a very quick week. Oh my God. So this is the first time for you now uh, no, for, no, to be no. in Tallinn. No, we've been running workshops. I've maybe run 12 events in Tallinn over the last four years. Ah, okay. So you like Europe? I do, I do. I mean, most of the, most of the uh, speaking, consulting and workshops that I've done over the last five years have been in Northern Europe, Scandinavia, oh. the Baltics. So how you got into this market? Do you know, just by accident, um, when I made the decision to, um, to get really involved in business speaking, I was invited to do some events here. Mm -hmm. And the first events went so well that I just kept getting invited to come back. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's funny, my clients will often say to me, I'm ready for international expansion. Mm -hmm. And I always say, well, why? Have you, like, completely saturated your own market? You know, sometimes like somebody has a business, say, in England, mm -hmm. and they just so desperately want to be doing business other places. I'm like, well... What if you grew your business to full potential in England and then expand? And so that's what happened to me in Europe is my first events were in Scandinavia mm -hmm. and I just kept getting invited to be there. So why spread myself out and try and expand into South Africa, Australia, Canada, the US mm -hmm. when I'm doing very well in that market? Mm -hmm. Now that we've done so well in that market, now, it's, you know, it, uh, now it makes sense for us to start looking at, at other countries. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to attend one of your business uh, freedom academies. Um, or uh, uh, seminars, or how do you call it? It's seminar, a, workshop, seminar boot workshop, boot camp. <laughs> so it's a five-day event. Yes. And uh, you teach business owners and entrepreneurs there how, how to create a business that run itself also, that they are not present every day. So I think that when we start a business, why we start a business? Just to get rid of the job or to create more personal freedom. And then yeah. what, what we do? then we, we, we build a personal prison around ourselves. That's about so, right. Yeah. Most business owners, we are maybe not free from the business to do whatever we want. So how, what is your number one advice for somebody that is getting in the business right now with a big hope, 
like I want to have more freedom well, and more my, time for fa family. My normal advice, like when I meet somebody who's thinking of starting their first company, is I tell them not to. I say, don't do it. It's too hard. It's too scary. It's too difficult. And, 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 and I'm serious. And, wow. But the thing is, is that, you know, if somebody will not do it because I said don't do it, yeah. they shouldn't be doing it. Right. Like wow. it is going to take a lot of hard work. It is going to take commitment. And so I've done seminars all over the world and somebody says, well, I'm thinking of starting a business. And I said, don't. And, and, and they're like, what do you mean? And, and what I'm trying to it's a little bit of a joke, but I'm saying mm -hmm. if my advice don't is enough to scare them away, then they don't have what it takes. Okay. You see? Okay. So and it's so, like teasing them. Yeah. Like I'll yeah. tell you, I was in uh, Bali many yeah, in yeah. 2004 and there was a very big earthquake in Jogjakarta yeah, yeah, yeah. and I wanted to go and help. So I, 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 I got a car and I, a truck and I filled it with food and water and medical supplies. And then I phoned a friend of mine to get advice. Mm -hmm. and, and the reason I phoned him is that he was a very, uh, he did two tours of, of duty in an active war. He understood those dangerous situations and now he was doing m m relief work. Okay. And I called him and I said, have you heard about the earthquake? He said, yes. And I said, I'm going over to help. Do you have any advice? He says, don't go. And I, I said, why not? Because this is dangerous. It's dangerous to go. Mm -hmm. and, and then I said, well, I'm going. There's nothing you can say. I'm going. Go, go. He goes, okay, now I'll give you the advice. Okay. Right? Like, okay. and, and I think that entrepreneurship is tough and you need a thick skin. And, and very often what happens is people are so optimistic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about it. What, 80% of businesses fail before they get to the fifth year? Yeah. So you have to be a bit crazy optimistic to start a business. And so if I can say to you, don't do it, and, then you, mm -hmm. and that scares you, you have no business doing it, you know? It's like, and, and so now I joke, I say, don't do it. Then they go, I'm gonna do it no matter what. Okay. Now I can give them advice. Okay. And, so, and then the advice I have yeah. is be clear about the end result. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't mean they have to know every detail of the end result, but mm -hmm. here's an example. We talk about two different kinds of business freedom. One is where you own a standalone business. Okay. The business operates smoothly, it grows, it generates a nice profit, and, it, and you don't have to be there at all. Mm -hmm. uh, a simple example might be that somebody goes and buys a dry cleaner, mm -hmm. and the dry cleaner is you know, not doing very well, but with a little bit of marketing help, a little bit of consulting, they buy it, and they turn it into a profitable enterprise. But they don't know anything about dry cleaning. They're not there managing the store. Okay. They own the dry cleaner, mm -hmm. and that's it. They, they, they look at the financials, and they own the business. That's what we call type one business freedom. When you own a company that is an asset mm -hmm. and the asset uh, grows and, and it manages itself. Mm -hmm. Type two business freedom is when somebody creates an, uh, an entrepreneurial venture or a business around their own passion. Mm -hmm. This would be like a doctor or a dentist or a consultant or a coach or a psychotherapist or somebody who is like an artist who is really wanting to do the work. Mm -hmm. And in their case, we say, well, that's a dangerous trap because when you start that kind of a company, you so love doing the work that you sometimes won't work on the business mm -hmm. and, and build a robust business. So now, God forbid something happens to you, you know, something happens to you, what, well, what's going to happen to your family? You know, the business is, if you go, if something happens to the owner, then the business goes out of business. What happens to the family? And so type two business freedom is where somebody builds a company that allows them to work on their passion most of the time, but doesn't require them to. Mm. And that's a very important distinction. Somebody should be able to take a year off 
and not worry about their business. Mm -hmm. And then they have an asset. If they can take a year off and not worry about their business, it's, you know, that's great. If there's a family emergency or there's a great vacation or they've decided they want to educate their children for a year, whatever the case may be, the business is going to keep paying them. Okay, so what are some fundamentals that you have to have in place to be able to do that? Well, obviously you need the right people. Yeah. You know, that's going to be, yeah, you've got to hire and train and support and nurture and develop the right people. And I think that's massively important. You also have to have really good business systems and procedures and templates so that your business is producing consistent results. Uh, from the first day I started my first company, I remember, I still remember doing it to this day. It's 20 years ago or something, but I, I received my first purchase order, first one. And my thought was, if I was a big company, how would I respond to this? Well, I thought if I was a big company, then they would get an order confirmation. This is back in the days of fax machines, right? But they would get an order confirmation on their fax machine that says, it's a template and it says, we've received your order. These, these are the products that you've ordered. This is the address you've asked us to ship it to. Please confirm that these details are correct. If there are any problems, give us a call. Otherwise, you can expect your shipment to arrive on you know, March 8th. You know? and, and I created this really nice template with the logo and nicely designed, and then I sent it off to the client. And so when they received it, I looked like a big company. But the other thing is I then saved that document in a folder called templates. And so the next time when a purchase order came in, I just grabbed that original document, changed the details inside, sent it off. Saves me a huge amount of work, makes me look very professional for my clients, but also it means that when I hire somebody, half the work is done for them. So it makes it easier. Train him. So hiring, systemizing the business, what else? How? It, the biggest thing of all is get out of the way. The, no. biggest, the biggest obstacle to business freedom. <laughs> it's not freedom, that easy for us. The <laughs> biggest obstacle for business freedom is the entrepreneur's mind. And, and what I mean by that is that, you know, uh, look, a good example is when I started my first company, it was in England, and, and I, had, I owned that company for just about nine years. And every single year that I owned that company, I took 12 to 14 weeks of vacation. 12 to 14 weeks. And my friend said, you're crazy. You're going to lose your company if you're always away like that. Really? And my answer was different. My answer was... First of all, I don't want to be a business owner if it doesn't give me this kind of freedom. I, I, don't, I don't want to take all the risks of being a business owner if I'm not going to have this kind of freedom. And second, my answer was, is that when I'm away, and by the way, when I go away, I, I go away a little differently than most people. I don't just go to some resort somewhere. I might be you know, uh, riding on horseback through the Okavango Delta in Botswana, nowhere near a phone, right? So that means the company can't even reach me. I might be climbing Kilimanjaro. I, I, I've, I do crazy adventure stuff. So when I go away like that, I'm breaking two addictions. I'm breaking my addiction to my business because... To control it? Yeah, my desire to control it, my addiction for feedback. My, I'm breaking my emotional addictions to my business. But another addiction that I'm breaking is my business's addiction to me. Mm -hmm. Right. So what happens if I'm in the office, right, is, is an employee has, or a manager, they have a problem. Yeah. Well, then they're going to want to bring the problem to me because why not? I, you know, it's right. But if I'm not there, they have to solve the problem. And you know what? Sometimes they get it wrong and that costs me money or it's painful. But that's how they develop experience. Mm -hmm. And if I don't ever give them the opportunity to develop experience, how am I ever going to have freedom? Yeah, that's right. But I think that the biggest problem we have is hiring good talent. How, how did you hire in the past and how do you hire right now? Do you have some 
hiring process in the place? Do you use some tools when you hire people to find out if you are a good fit? What, what do you do? The first thing is, I think I pay a lot of attention to where I'm hiring from. So for example, when I was hiring salespeople for my company, um, you know, this is a little silly, but I would hardly ever hire a salesperson who was unemployed. If, like I if I, I run an ad, I'm getting all these unemployed salespeople. Well, if they're unemployed and they're a salesperson, that makes me wonder how good a salesperson they are. Now, I know that's not totally fair because sometimes circumstances change, but the fact is salespeople should be unemployed the least amount of time because they should be good at selling themselves. And so very rarely would I hire a salesperson who is unemployed. I would go out into the world and find salespeople that I really respected, that I liked, that I thought did a great job, and then I would recruit them. So for a good example, in, uh, in the UK, we had a chain called... Um, I think it was Office Depot. And so I would, uh, when I was getting ready, when I knew I needed salespeople, I would go shopping. I'd walk out the office door. My assistant would say, where are you going? I'd say, shopping. And she goes, what are you shopping for? I would say, a printer and a salesperson. Wow. So I would go to the store. I would find out all about the printers. And then I would meet the salesperson. And I would, if I found out I liked him if, or her, if I found out that they were committed, that I found out that they were honest, if I found out that they were good at what they were doing, then I would begin the recruiting process. Look, they're working in retail, they're earning minimum money, they're working terrible hours. I have a professional office, they're gonna earn five times as much money and they're gonna work nice hours. It's not gonna be difficult to recruit them. And my belief is it's way better to hire for attitude and take somebody who I know has a great attitude because I've been working with them and then teach them the technical knowledge they need to have. I'm happy to do that. And that always worked better than when I hired salespeople from inside the industry that already had the technical knowledge. Sometimes I would go meet a salesperson and, and, he, and he or she had all the great technical knowledge and I think they'd be fantastic. I hire them. Turns out that they have all these bad habits from the industry. Go hire young, aggressive, new, positive energy. Sure, they don't know anything about our stuff, but they, but they understand technology because I've hired them from a retail company that's selling electronics. They have a good attitude, good hire. And, and that worked for me really, really well. The other thing that's really important is the way interviewing is done. In our Business Freedom Academy, we teach some interviewing techniques that are designed to prevent one of the biggest mistakes of business, I think. And that mistake is hiring nice, ineffective people. Mm. You know, we, we sit and have an interview, and how does the average interview work? If I'm interviewing you, uh, you sit down, you're feeling nervous, so I'm not even meeting you, I'm meeting the nervous you. I don't want to meet the nervous you, I want to meet the relaxed you, because the relaxed you is the one that I want in my office, right? So immediately the interview is wrong. Now I'm interviewing the nervous you, and what do I do? I ask you a bunch of questions that you were expecting. Right? Yeah, like, you yeah, know what yeah, I'm going to yeah, ask. Yeah, I'm going to ask, yeah. why did you leave your last There's job? some trainings and, out there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They, you, they, when they go for their interview, they go to Google and say, what kind of questions are they going to ask me? Yeah. So, and then they go practice in the bathroom, right? So that means you're, first of all, interviewing the nervous version. And secondly, you're, you're interviewing an actor because they're just practicing lines. So my job, my feeling is, is that when somebody's coming in for the interview, your first job is to make them feel good. Your first job is to make them feel relaxed. It's to let their real personality come out. So that means even from the point of the initial reception, if you have a receptionist, your receptionist is greeting that person and saying, I'm so glad you're here. Can I make you a tea or a coffee? Or would you like a glass of water? We've been looking forward to your interview. So this puts them at ease. They're like, wow, you're excited to meet me. They relax a little bit. Now you're gonna meet the real version of them, not this stressed out one. 
And then one of the things that we suggest is that you, you have a nice conversation and you ask questions that they're not expecting. Like, like here's a silly one, the silly example I always use. Yeah. Ask them where they like to go for their favorite vacation. I mean, you're going to learn they're something. They're not used to this. They're definitely. not used to this. And if they go, oh, my favorite vacation, I love to go camping with my family. I love to sit around the fire and go fishing and blah, blah, blah. You're, you're learning something about them. On the other hand, if they say, oh, my favorite vacation, Las Vegas. Oh my I God. love going to Las yes. Vegas. <laughs> Last time I went to Las Vegas, I woke up in Bangkok. <laughs> yeah. He's out. You've, <laughs> you've learned something. Clearly, I'm exaggerating. But yes. the fact is, is that asking, you know, um, asking questions like that that they're not expecting really will help you to learn who they are. And there's more steps that, that we cover in the academy, but I'll give you one more. Okay. Give them a chance to sell themselves. You know, mostly these days what an interview is, is look at the resume, look at the CV, see if you like the details in it, bring them in for the interview, find out if you like them, and maybe make them do some kind of test, and then that's that. No. Again, let's say I'm hiring a salesperson. Yeah. I'm going to have a nice interview with them. I'm going to ask them questions. I'm going to help them relax. And there's going to come a point in the interview where I'm going to say, wow, thank you so much for coming in for this interview. It's really been a nice, it's nice been meeting you. And, yeah. and I think you maybe could fit in here with our team. The trouble is we have a very competitive environment here, and I'm just not picking up that competitive spirit from you. How do you feel about that? And so what I've done is I've rejected him softly or I've rejected her softly. And then I'm opening the door for them to come back. Oh, no, well, I'm very competitive. I'll definitely work hard. And, and you can do that rejection on any trait that you want them to have. So if you're interviewing an accountant, you're interviewing the accountant. Relax them. Ask them a bunch of questions. Then, hey, listen, I've really enjoyed our interview. I think maybe you could fit on our team. The challenge is that our company is very precise. We like all of our accounts to be exactly on time. And frankly, like, we like to be up to date on all the latest tax laws. Like, really, like, like we want to be up to date with everything. And I'm just not getting that detail-oriented attitude from you. Wow. And then you're going to get one of three reactions after the rejection. The one, I'm not kidding you, I've had this. They go, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Great. Up to that point, maybe you were going to hire them. Now you're not going to hire them and you're going to save yourself three months of salary and a lawsuit maybe, right? On the other hand, here's another reaction they might have. They might get angry. Mm -hmm. They might get angry and have some kind of meltdown or temper tantrum. Thank God you found out today that they were a nutbag, yeah, that, they, that they were you're crazy. Gonna fight with them in yeah, otherwise you're going to have a lawsuit and they're going to disrupt your company. But the reaction you want is where they go, well, I'm not sure why you're feeling that way. Maybe it's because in this interview, I'm a little bit relaxed. But the fact is, I'm very competitive or I'm extremely detail-oriented. And, you, you know, absolutely. And, and have them fight for the position. Have them commit to it. And then you're going to achieve two things. One, you're going to find out a lot more about them. And the second one is you're going to get them to verbally commit to the values that you're hiring for. Mm. This is so powerful. It really is. I never did this and I will do it. Next time, for sure. We have a really nice uh, program. What, what would you say to some salespeople? Like, I, I own insurance agency. I need mm -hmm. good salespeople. So how would you approach them? Like, just like I just described. Like, bring them in for the interview. Relax them. Right now, you know, like for example, if you show up at the interview and you're wearing a perfect suit and the office is perfect and they come in perfect and everything's yeah, yeah. perfect, then they're feeling tense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They're nervous. Yeah. It's their first interview. They're, they're nervous. Yeah, yeah. What you want to do, the first step is have a whole procedure for making them relax. 
making them relax, making them feel wanted, making them feel appreciated, making them feel like you're grateful that they are there. Because then they're gonna slip into their own personality and that's how you're really gonna meet them. So once you've done that, then you're asking them the different questions yeah, yeah. and then at some point, you just, you just say, listen, I, I'm so glad you came in for this interview, but uh, here at the agency, we are, it's a pretty high pressure situation. You know, we expect a lot from our people. They, they don't, they don't, you know, our office opens at nine. People don't show up here at nine. They show up at 8.30, they hang up their coat, they do their little conversation in the, in the, at the coffee machine. And then by nine o'clock, they're sitting down and they're working. It's a very, you know, and I'm just not getting that kind of energy from you. How do you feel about that? Oh no, they would say, oh, I'm totally committed. I work really hard, I'll show up early. You see, you're getting them to commit to the standard that you want. How would you call that? Like fighting for the position you're or making rejection them, question? Yeah, you're rejecting them and you're making them fight for the position. And you need to, especially with salespeople. Look, if you reject him, yes. if you reject her <laughs> yeah. and you say, I just don't think you have what it takes and they go, Okay. Okay. Well, yeah. then I think you probably shouldn't hire them. Yeah. After three sales calls or appointments, they're out of the They're business. out anyway. And you've cost money and time and effort in training them. So save yourself all that time. Give them the rejection in the interview. Let them earn the right. Let them earn the job. Let them convince you. If they can't sell themselves to you, how are they going to sell your insurance to somebody else? So Business Freedom Academy, is it only for traditional types of businesses, owners, or is it also for speakers, coaches, healers, teachers, authors? It's, it's for anyone with an entrepreneurial spirit. The, at the end of the day, somebody who has an entrepreneurial spirit that wants to go out and create value-free people in the world has the capacity to create a business that will let them flourish, that will let them be themselves. I really believe that entrepreneurship is the greatest expression of personal freedom as long as it's practiced correctly. Otherwise, like you said, it's just a personal jail. Yeah. How long you are in the speaking uh, business right now? Like how many years? Maybe five years. Five, I mean, I've been years? speaking longer. Okay. Um, like uh, I've spoken for work sometimes. And, uh, and then after I sold my first company in, I don't know, whatever it was, 2006, I suppose. I, um, I did about two years of speaking around the world, but just for fun. I wasn't running a business. I was just traveling. I sort of semi-retired and was just traveling around the world speaking. And then about five, six years ago, um, I was uh, invited to teach business and marketing at uh, Anthony Robbins' Tony, uh, yeah, Tony Business Robbins. Mastery yeah. Programs. And I did that for about a year and a half, and I loved it so much that I, um, and, uh, yeah, I just made How the decision. How did they find about you? That's kind of a funny story. Uh, Tony and I had a mutual friend named Chet Holmes. Mm -hmm. And yeah. uh, no, Chet books, yeah, sales machine. That's right. And Chet was a great guy and he was a very good friend of mine. And the funny side of it is that Chet was not, he was not a very good judge of whether somebody was a good speaker. So if he saw somebody up on the stage and there was an audience, he thought they were a great speaker. So he had a few times recommended people to Tony that didn't do so very well. And so then he recommended me to Tony, and Tony's like, nope. Because, like, it's enough. Like, I, you are a bad source. <laughs> three up, three down, <laughs> nope. And then, uh, so I was never going to get the invitation. But then, um, sadly, Chet passed away. And he was scheduled. He, he had been sick for some time, and it looked like he was recovering. And as I understand it, he was then scheduled to speak at this event in, uh, in Fiji, a uh, business mastery event in Fiji. And, um, but of course, you know, he'd passed away, that made it difficult for him to be there. And so 
then I got this phone call. Um, you know, they, they would like you to come out and teach. And the truth is, I actually thought it was a joke. You yeah, know, I, 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 I hadn't, yeah, I hadn't been doing any speaking for three years. So why would they call me? I, I didn't, why would Tony even know who I was? You know, I, I, I was out of the blue. And so the guy who said it, he goes, no, no, Tony really wants you to come. He really wants you to come. And I was like, no, no I know what's going on here. I'm thinking what's happened is, is that when, when Chet passed away, it left so little time yeah. that you can't find anybody. You've called everybody and nobody can go. And now you're calling me as your last chance. Yeah. And, and if I say yes, you're going to go beg Tony to let me do it because Tony doesn't want me. And, and, and I said, that's what's really going on. And he was just quiet on the phone. And then he goes, yeah, but I know I can convince him. <laughs> and so I said, I'll tell you in one hour. Nice. I said, I'll tell you in one hour. And I put the phone down. And I stopped and I breathed and I went to my wife and I said, wow, this is a big opportunity. What do you think? She goes, call back right now. I said, nope, one hour. And 59 minutes, she made me phone. And I called and I said, yes, I'll do it. And 11 days later, I was on a plane flying to Fiji and I thought, I knew that it was one of those moments that if I did it right, it could be big. It wasn't just one thing. In fact, here's a good example. As we were flying into Fiji, I thought to myself, you know, if I really do this well, and this is, a, this is a thought I've been having for like a week, if I do this really well, maybe they'll call me again, you know, they, if I do it well. But then as the plane was landing in Fiji, I thought something different. I don't want to just get on the list. I want to become the list. In other words, if I don't just do really well, but if I am outstanding, then maybe I become the preferred speaker, not just the backup speaker. And when I changed my goal, it changed my energy and it changed the presentation that I was going to do. And I ended up taking some risks with the presentation, but I did such a good presentation that Tony stayed for the entire presentation, three and a half hours uh, and half in Chinese, right? So that was quite something. Um, and then we had lunch, uh, he, um, him and uh, uh, my wife Elise and Sage and me, the four of us had lunch. And then he asked me if I would uh, do business mastery for the next year. And it was a, a very big turning point as a speaker. Wow. So what, what would you change if you had to start all over again with the speaking business? Nothing. Nothing? I, I, no. I don't really live like that. You know, I, I've, I've made some really big mistakes, but the way as, I look at speaker, it, as a speaker, yeah. as a business owner, I've made mistakes. But the way I look at it is that um, if you make a mistake in your first year as a speaker, it costs you something. something yeah. If you make that same mistake 10 years later, it costs you a lot more. And so I look at it and I think, I, you know, if, 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 if I changed anything, I would change everything. And I, I'm not interested in that. I don't have a sense of regret. I, you know, I'll give you a good example. I, I bought a movie studio in California one day and, and I, it was a big mistake. The guys who sold it to me, one of them was like a convicted felon, it turned out. The guy was facing, a, at one point, a, almost 500 years in prison for investment fraud and, or something similar to that. And, and I, um, and I only found that out after I bought the company. I lost huge amounts of money. I lost huge amounts of time. But if I try and go back and take that mistake out, let me tell you what happens. If I take that mistake out, then I don't move to Northern California. Mm -hmm. If I don't move to Northern California, I don't become friends with Chet Holmes. Mm -hmm. If I don't become friends with Chet Holmes, I don't end up working with Tony. Also, I became very good friends with John and Bonnie Gray. John Gray wrote the Mars Venus books. Because of my friendship with John Gray, I got invited to join an organization with him and Jack Canfield and others that has connected me with people around the world. So if I take out that one mistake, I take out all this other stuff too. So I just, 
I don't feel there are no mistakes. There are, everything is happening for you all no the reason. time, even the tough stuff. Well, inception marketing. You're talking about inception marketing uh, in your business, Freedom Academy. Yeah. What is inception? Well, uh, inception marketing, um, the English word inception means the beginning. So if you talk about the inception of a business, it's the day the business started. In this case, we're talking about the inception of an idea. Uh, if you've ever had a conversation with somebody where they say something like, wow, I've always wanted one of those, or I've always wanted to do that, they're not really telling you the truth, you know, like they haven't always. But the fact is, is that, or it seems to me that if they feel like it was their own idea, then they say, I always wanted to do that, right? Like it, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. It's different than if you convinced them. But if they come to the idea on their own, then they have ownership of the idea, and then they're more likely to take action on it. So the idea of inception marketing is to create marketing campaigns that are so effective and so, and so valuable that the prospect wants to interact with the marketing. In other words, they don't see it as marketing, they see it as valuable. And that as a result of interacting with the marketing, they arrive at the conclusion on their own that they want to buy mm -hmm. your product or your service mm -hmm. rather than you trying to convince them. Mm -hmm. okay. That's what inception marketing is about. Great. Uh, being a business owner, running a business, having a life, uh, running a family life, being a husband, having a two years old daughter, and 20 years old son. It's a wide gap between. <laughs> it's a bit what, of a gap. what did you did you do in between? <laughs> I, I always had this idea that you know if I was ever going to have a daughter, I wanted her I wanted her to have an older brother who could protect her. He needed to be old, and now he's old enough to have a car and a gun if that's necessary. No way that you thought that really. No, no, no like, that, just, like that he would she would have an older brother. No, it was oh, just no. a matter of circumstance. Okay. That, uh, you know, I I uh, my. My first wife and I um, had our child together, and after that we had a divorce. And after our divorce, we had a good friendship. And mm -hmm. and then so you're I, friends? we're very good friends. And um, and then I met my uh, my present wife. We've been together now for 12 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, one day she just arrived at the uh, you know just saying, "Wow, I think I want to have a child." And and uh, I, I it was so funny. I'm, I mean, I'm, that journey was so long ago for me. It was so like, "Wow, okay, let's do that again." And it has been magical. It really was not magical. easy, probably, huh, to say yes. No, it wasn't. I, I, I mean, it really was a difficult thing for me because, you see, what people who don't have children, I mean, people sit around and fantasize, oh, it would be really nice to be a parent. They have no idea what they're talking about. Like, they, they don't know. They don't understand how difficult it is. They don't understand what it's like to go for months without sleep. Uh, you know, they don't understand what it's like to fly with a two-year-old. Like, they fantasize, oh, it would be so much fun. Okay, yes, th there will be moments. But uh, the fact is, it's tough. And I knew that, but my wife didn't. And so we had some very interesting conversations. But I, I am very, very glad yeah, that we yeah, did. Yeah. We have a gorgeous, amazing... Uh, charismatic, witty little girl, and, and she's so much fun to spend time. I'm glad that, uh, you know, she doesn't often travel with me, but she's here in Tallinn, and it's, here, it's so yeah. nice that it, when I, I come out and I speak at events and I go back to the house that we've rented and, and my family's here, it's really special. This is, yeah. Right now my kids are seven and eight years old, um, and it's not, it's not that easy to travel around, you know. Yeah. Uh, I miss them a lot. I miss them. How do you fight with that? You know, it's um, it's interesting. You know, 
it's not that easy to, I was to sort talk of, about this with some... <laughs> I was sort of forced into that with my son because um, when his mother and I had our divorce, we lived in different countries. And so that made it impossible for me to be around my son very much. And so I had kind of been through a much harder version mm -hmm. where I would go months without seeing my son. Oh my God. And so, um, you know, with Zoe, I do find it very difficult to leave the house. Uh, you know, also at, at this age, they change so much in a week. Mm -hmm. You know, I leave and she's saying these words and I come back and she's saying more words. You know, I leave and she's walking around like stumbly and I come back and she's walking fast. And you, you know, uh, but I think the other thing is, is that Frankly, the way I am in my head, I'm not sure I'm a very good father when I'm at home all the time. Mm -hmm. Because when I'm at home all the time, then I just, I'm working and I'm focused. And, but if I'm traveling to work, when I come home, I'm more off. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm a more attentive father by going and working in a concentrated way, going and doing workshops, and then I come home and I don't have as much work to do. Mm -hmm. And so I think that I'm better able to be a father that way. So I do, I, I mean, I miss her terribly when I'm away, but we also, you know, we have, she, we, she now understands Skype calls, you know, or, uh -huh. or a so video you, you call. you connect with her. Yeah, that. and so we talk and we play peekaboo on the, on the Skype call and stuff. And, and um, I think the hard part is that right now, she's okay when you walk out the room but I know there's going to be a moment where, and it's not long. I mean, she's speaking a lot now. And I, I think, can tell you from my experience, yeah. it's going to happen at five, six. I don't think so. I think it's going to happen at three. I, think, I feel it happening this close already. Like and she's going to say one day, I'm going to, be, I'm going to have my suitcases and she's going to walk up to me and she's going to say, Daddy, please don't go. My, my kids, like when I went out from home and they were two and three, they would usually sit into the... In the suitcase, she in does suitcase. that. Yeah, she does that. So that told me a lot. They didn't yeah. articulate, they couldn't, but they were sitting in the suitcase. Yeah, and so when I come home... It brought tears to my eyes. When I come home, sometimes she's a little like... Yeah. Just, yeah. just for a minute, not, not even 10 minutes. Um, but then the other thing is, is that when I come home, uh, there's a certain hug that she gives me, and she would never give it to anyone else. She was not very cuddly. She's now very cuddly. But when she was like 18 months, she wasn't very like cuddly, affectionate, you know, unless she was very tired. But I would come home from a trip and I'd pick her up and she'd put her cheek on my chest and she would just, and it doesn't matter. She could be running around the house with all this energy, all this energy, and then I walk in the door and she'd come up and put her cheek on my chest and for 20 minutes she would just breathe with me. Mm -hmm. And it was the most beautiful welcome like synchronizing, home. synchronizing. Yeah, it was really gorgeous. Now she gives her mom those hugs too, like she's like, you know, but it was funny, it, we even in the house we call them daddy hugs because for the longest time she would only ever do it for me. It was strange. Yeah, yeah so they, they started when, I, when they were five, maybe not five, six. She can be very clear now, like, you have to go again. I'm yeah. missing, you know? Before they didn't, they didn't spoke, they didn't speak so, so, so openly about that, but yeah. It's, it's well, you know, my thing. wife and I have traditionally traveled a lot. Um, my wife was very much into travel even before we got together. She was a professional tennis player and, and she enjoyed traveling. And, uh, and so I think we've been just waiting for Zoe to get to about this age um, so that she can travel with us more. Uh, so for example, we're now here in Thailand for almost a month. I, I'm here for a month and they are here for three weeks. Uh, then we're going to Montreal all together. Uh, so I think that now we'll probably, she'll probably come with me more. Yeah. And, and these days, I think, you know, having a, 
like, for example, the, the concept of Mind Valley University. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really fascinating. I think how amazing is it for her if every year for the next yeah. 10 years she spends one month at Mind Valley University? Yeah. How interesting yeah, is that? Yeah. Great stuff. Yeah. And she can learn and grow. Yeah. And meet people. Meet, meet and, people, yeah. have friends. Yeah. Wow. So, entrepreneurs, what are their biggest challenges that you see? Like, is it, I, I is, really it, is it having free time, time for kids, family, struggling for more profits? <laughs> well, I mean, you're talking about the symptoms. Yeah. I think the challenge is mostly it's the entrepreneur themselves. Mm-hmm. It's, it's understanding their own psychology. I mean, one of the things that amazes me is that you know entrepreneurs are generally uh, good problem solvers and generally fairly creative in the way they think and generally pretty optimistic people. Mm-hmm. If they weren't those things, they probably wouldn't have started a business in the first place. The challenge now is, is that I think a lot of these entrepreneurs are uh, using their optimism, their creativity, and their problem solving to solve problems that have already been solved by other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're worrying about marketing, they're worried about hiring practices, they're worried about how to do systems and procedures, and like, all that stuff's already been solved. You know, there, there's people like me that are out there teaching it, like uh, uh, Vern Harnish, like uh, uh, um, Michael Gerber, like there are a variety of people that are teaching what people really need to know to build robust businesses, and yet they're trying to solve the problems themselves. And I think one of the reasons is that most countries uh, have a school system that values solo effort. Mm-hmm. In most countries, if you collaborate with somebody else, it's called cheating. Cheating, yeah. And so, you know, so entrepreneurs are very often having this, oh, and then the other thing is, even if you put kids on a project together, the way the school system works is it's almost like they're competing for, you know, who really did the most work, right? So That's right. Exactly. So now entrepreneurs, it's like, well, I have to do it myself, then it's my victory. And I'm thinking, Richard Branson is making some pretty cool victories by inspiring other people to make things happen. And so I think that that's one of the biggest problems for entrepreneurs is this crazy idea, even if it's unconscious, this crazy notion that they should do it themselves, that they shouldn't be asking for help, that they shouldn't have a coach or a mentor. Like, think about this. I've been, I'm a big fan of tennis. I've been um, watching Roger Federer again. And think about this. I mean, Roger Federer is arguably the greatest tennis player to ever play. I think Nadal's going to give him a good run, but yeah. <laughs> but, but here's here Federer and Nadal, and they have coaches. Yeah, not one. Who coaches them? I mean, how do you, if you're Federer, how do you find somebody who can coach you? I mean, there's nobody that's done anything even close to what he can do on the tennis court. And here's the crazy thing. You know what's supposed to happen as a tennis player gets older? They're supposed to lose power on their serve. I mean, he's very old now. I think mm. he's 37. He's an old man. My God. <laughs> and those guys in the, on the sports say that kind of stuff, right? But, but the fact is, is that I was just the other day looking at his serve statistics, and he is winning more of his first serves now than he was in his career this year. He's winning more of his second serves now than he was in, his, in, his, in the rest of his career. Why? You know why? Yeah, he has good coaching, and he has a huge commitment to results and a huge commitment to winning. Now, here's, here's a funny thing. People say, well, of course he has a coach, you know, because... The opportunity for him is so big. I mean, you know, I think I was reading Nadal has overall prize money so far of, and, and how old is he? 34 or something. something. And his overall prize money so far has been almost $100 million. And Federer's probably made more than that, of course. So, so of course they should have a coach because the opportunity is so big. But wait a second, hold on a minute. Federer is the number one, the number one, him, say he and Nadal, number one, yeah, they yeah, share yeah. it together maybe a little bit. 
But in terms of earnings, they have hit the highest potential they can in their sport. Compare that to the highest potential in entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. It's a different thing. In, in sport, if you can make $100 million over 10 years, that's the top. That's as far as it goes. In entrepreneurship, the number one in entrepreneurship is worth $100 billion. And number two is worth $90 billion. And number three is worth $87 billion. And number four is worth $56 billion. You have a list of people that are in double-digit billions. And then you have a massive list of people that are in triple-digit millions. The opportunity in entrepreneurship is infinitely bigger than it is in sports. And yet people think, oh, well, the sports person should have a coach because the opportunity is so yeah. big. And it's no. normal to have a coach in, in sport. Yeah. And not in business. If, if you don't have a coach in business, the things you're missing out on are incredible. One of my favorite examples, I went hunting with the Hadza Bushmen in East Africa one day. Mm-hmm. First time I went hunting with them, they hand me a bow and an arrow. And, and I have the bow and the arrow and, and I've got the bow and I'm trying to pull the string back and I can't. Their, their, their bows are so stiff. I can't do it. I mean, I, I think of myself, I'm a pretty strong guy. Right, yeah. I can't pull it back. So the chief, he comes over to me and he takes both my hands and he moves my arms in like this. And he says, now push. And I push and the string stays. And boom. Just little one trick. One little distinction. Yeah. And I know from working with my clients that many times I can give them that one little distinction and it can save them more money than they're paying me for a year. And I can do that in five minutes. Mm-hmm. And then I can do another one in another five minutes. Because very often the problems that entrepreneurs are trying to solve have already been solved. They just require a different perspective sometimes. You know, we have a, we have a client, we have a number of really great success clients here in Estonia. Um, you know, uh, one of the clients that's here, uh, he was actually based in Sweden when I first met him, but he's an Estonian guy. And when we first started doing business, when he first came to our workshops, I think his company was doing like, I want to say it was about, um, uh, I want to say it was about um, $25,000 a month in revenue. And 18 months later, he was doing $250,000 a month in revenue and had much bigger staff. This is in 18 months. But that's all fascinating. But one, one of the things that really I loved is one day he wrote me an email and he says, Eric, thank you. You saved my life today. This is years later. I go, how did I save your life? And he says, well, there was one exercise that we did during the weekend. And that exercise I didn't think was very valuable. But on Friday, something happened in my business. And if we didn't do that exercise, I would have gone out of business that day. But because we did that exercise, I already knew what to do. And so I was able to save the company. And because of that, all, everybody still has their jobs. My family still has a house. And he says, thank you so much. And you know, like one little shift, mm-hmm. one. So I think personal development is very well connected with the business development and growth. Like- if they're not connected, then it's some, I mean, look, if you want to make some money, work on your business. If you want to create an incredible life and make an incredible amount of money, work on yourself. Wow. So you have also the event, uh, the retreat, Azaya. Mm-hmm. Azaya. This is more the personal development yeah. event. You talk about beliefs, habits. It's more of a life planning event, really. The, okay. the background is that many, many years ago, uh, over 10 years ago, a friend of mine came up to me and he said, you know, Eric, uh, you seem to be living a very full life. Yeah. You're, you're achieving yeah. many yeah, things. Yeah, I can see your legs. Like, really. <laughs> he says, how do you do it all? And I said, I don't know. I get up in the morning and I do things. He says, yeah, but you're doing things different than me. It's like you have more time than I do. And I go, no, 24 hours a day, 365 days. We have the same time. 
And he says, so you must have a system. And I said, well, once a year, I take two days and I look at my year and I look at what was working and I look at what wasn't working. And then I look at the year ahead that I want to have. Mm -hmm. And I get clear about that and I set a very strong intention. Isaiah is a Sanskrit word and it uh -huh, means yeah, yeah, intention. Isaiah, yeah. And so you set this powerful intention. But now what you have to do is examine the difference between what you had this year and what you want next year. And so that means like, for example, looking at the habits that are getting in the way mm -hmm. and breaking them and looking at the habits and rituals that will help you. It means looking at the beliefs that are blocking you and creating beliefs that will push you forward. Mm -hmm. And it means looking at your values and determining where your values are in conflict that are gonna prevent you from achieving what you really want. And so I described the system to him and he asked me if I could teach it to other people. So we started running workshops. Back then it was like 200 people for two days, very fun, very powerful. But I sat down with my wife maybe more than five years ago and I just said, I don't, I don't want to do that anymore. I feel like I want to spend more time with them mm -hmm. and I don't want 200 people. I want to spend more intimate time and really help people more deeply. Mm -hmm. And I also don't want to travel so much. And so we came up with the solution and the solution was to create a week long program that was limited to like 20 people mm -hmm. and that we do teach like at our house or, you know, or, or yeah, in yeah. Cabarete. And, um, and that's how Isaiah was born. And it is, we only do it once a year for a very you know, uh, a private group of people, but it is really, really important work. And one of the reasons I like doing is it reminds me mm -hmm. to work on me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beliefs, what are some common beliefs of successful people that you know? No, well, you, you, let's you. take a step back. I have yeah. a way of describing beliefs that I think yeah. you might like, and that is that I think of beliefs as like little organisms. Mm -hmm you know, and, uh, and they're very hungry and they can only eat one thing, evidence. Mm. That's all they can do, they can just eat evidence. And the more evidence they eat, the bigger they get and the stronger they get. And so if you have a negative belief, say somebody has a belief like all the great opportunities are already gone, then that, what the, that, that belief is sitting in there and it's looking around for evidence, evidence that all the opportunities are gone. And then they go, oh, look, there's Uber. Oh, look, there's Lyft. I should have thought of that. I didn't. The opportunity's gone. And it eats that evidence. And then it gets stronger. And then it eats another bit of evidence. And, and the more, it, the bigger it gets, the hungrier it gets. Mm -hmm. And it starts getting harder and harder to change that belief. On the other hand, if somebody has a belief that there's a ton of opportunity around them all the time, then what happens is they are constantly seeing sometimes the very same events, but they're seeing them differently they're seeing them as proof that there are opportunities all the time. And so now they're growing a more positive belief. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the first thing is, is just the way I think about beliefs. And then if you examine the kind of um, beliefs that uh, you know, really successful entrepreneurs have, you know, the one that, I, that I, I like a lot is they, they have a, very often they have a belief that there is opportunity around them all the time. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, is that they don't have to jump at every opportunity because there's opportunity all the time. And it means that they don't ever feel desperate because they know that the next opportunity is going to come. Look at Warren Buffett. How many transactions does he do in a year? Three? You know, he, he doesn't, he, he sits there patiently waiting for the opportunities, but he knows they're coming. Yeah. He knows they're coming. And so I think that's one of the beliefs that entrepreneurs have. Here's another one. It's, uh, um, it's a, I think it's, it's a, a belief of if it, um, a, a belief of personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. Now I don't mean that they have to do everything, but that ultimately they're responsible for everything. Mm -hmm. You know, so that uh, like um, one, of the, one of the things that my friend Chip Connolly says that I love so much is that CEO shouldn't be chief executive officer, it should be chief emotions officer. 
And that's because the CEO should be walking in and providing emotional certainty, should be providing the right emotional strength for the company. A CEO walks in in a bad mood one day, everybody's gonna wonder about that bad mood and it's gonna act like cancer in the business. Um, and then uh, I think another big one that's really important is, is that um, there are no problems, there are only opportunities. I think that's a really big belief of successful entrepreneurs that stuff happens and while they might not like it in that moment, they immediately look at it as an opportunity to grow, as an opportunity to achieve. In customer service, for example, I'm always saying, the problem is not when something goes wrong. The problem is how, is how it gets dealt with. Mm -hmm. you know, so I, I'll give you a really great example. I have, for many years, I've been a very big fan of Apple. Not so much lately. They're, they've become so arrogant that their customer service is starting to get really bad. We would call it hubris. And uh, recently I bought a, uh, um, uh, a hard drive, a $2,000 RAID, or maybe it was $2,700 RAID hard drive, a seriously mm -hmm. big hard drive. Got it to my house. I live in the Caribbean, so I had to take it with me. It's not working. So I, I don't have an Apple store near me, so I, I have it shipped to my assistant in, the, in America, and I ask her to take it to the Apple store. They go, we won't handle it. You have to take it to the original manufacturer. Original manufacturer says, we need to see a video of you testing it all the ways that it's supposed to be worked. Well, the cables are back at my house. So Apple says, we won't fix it, they won't fix it, they don't care. And they know there's a point at which my time is worth more than the $2,000 and now I'm gonna give up. They know that. And so it's, the issue there is not that there was a problem with the hard drive, the issue is the bad attitude in resolving it. Now, a great attitude would be, wow, well, let's take care of that, let's figure it out. And then that means in the future when something goes wrong, you go, oh, it, it's such a drag this went wrong, but I trust them to fix it. Now, when something goes wrong with my phone or my Mac, I'm, I, I go, oh, I just, I'm, sorry I have, I'm sorry I have an Apple product right now. I'm happy to have it when it's working, but the minute it's not working, I'm like, oh, I'm sorry I have it. Their, their follow-up is, is, has become so bad. So it's not what happens, it's how you deal with it, I think. Great. What about the habits, like productive habits that you have? What would you consider that? You know, I, 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 I think delegating. Um, yeah, you know, delegating is... a good habit. It really is a good habit, and I think that entrepreneurs are... Um, sometimes it's even a matter that because they're basically nice people, you know, a lot of times, there's a job that they don't want to do. You know, let's say accounting. I don't want to do it. I consider it a yucky job. So I don't want to ask you to do it because I, you know, and maybe I don't trust you to do it or whatever. And I think that that's one of the big things that entrepreneurs can overcome is recognizing that even, you see a lot of times entrepreneurs, they're under the illusion that they're smarter than everybody else, mm. right? Like they, because they started the company or something, I'm like, wow, if you have created a company where you're the smartest person in the room, I can tell you there's gonna be problems. Like you need to have people around you that are smarter than you, at least about specific things, yeah. right? Yeah. And so I think that that, uh, when you, like here's one of the illusions, is that the entrepreneur goes, well, I'm gonna do it myself because I can do it better than that person. That may even be true, but the fact is, is the entrepreneur is getting so busy mm -hmm. that they're gonna rush it. Well, when you rush it, do you do it as well as the other person? No. No. So better hand it over to the other person. Let them do it 80% as good as you can, because that's probably just as good as you were going to do. But the other thing is that once you've seen that they only did it 80%, now you can give them feedback on how to get it to 90% and feedback on how to get it 100%. And so by delegating and by letting people fail, you, you, you help them build uh, experience. And as a result of their experience, they're going to have better judgment and they're going to do a better job. I'm, I'm still thinking about you living in Dominican Republic, <laughs> you know? When did you move there? It's um, so uncommon for... 
somebody well, we, that we, is in the business, traveling in Europe, speaking around the world, and lives in Dominican Republic. We lived in uh, Turks why? and Caicos for about six years, okay. and um, and we we decided we wanted to leave uh, Turks and Caicos. And um, a friend of mine called me one day, and he says, "I'm at a conference, in in a kiteboarding conference in uh, uh, Turks and, or in Dominican Republic." And why don't you come for a visit? And so we thought, oh, sure, it's just 150 miles away from where we live. So, so we went. And the minute we got there, the people and the trees and the beaches and the water and the wind and the kite surfing and the economy and all these things just lined up. And we, we were there for three days. And by the end of the three days, we extended for three more days. And by the end of the six days, we put our house on the market and sold it, where I had it ready for no. selling. And we leased an apartment like that, that fast. That is the quick decision. And that was about six years ago now. Maybe five and a half years ago, yeah. We love it there. It's really beautiful. Yeah, I met Richard Branson a couple of years ago on yeah. his island, and I asked him the question, what is the difference between him and me? And he said that he made many more decisions probably than I did. So yeah, this you know, was a really fast decision. Like, I, I'm going there just to check out something, and then I sell the house back home, and I move. Unbelievable. Yeah. it's. Um, I, I think here's an important thing to think about is, like, uh, I remember hearing this uh, speaker say this once. He's like, imagine that Richard Branson woke up in your life tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So tomorrow morning, you wake up, but you're not you. You're Richard Branson. So you, you have your current money. You have your current businesses. You have your current contacts. But Richard's values and his, his decision-making process. How different is your year? How different is your life one year, two years, three years later? It's going to be pretty different. Mm -hmm. And so then the question is, what's the difference? Well... Not the money, not the businesses, not the contacts. It's the decision making. It's the, the risk taking. It's the, uh, um, it's the incremental adjustments that, that you're making. And I think that that's a really important um, point. And it's one of the reasons that I think people should have really powerful peers around them and they should have good coaches and mentors around them because it allows them to take advantage of that kind of thinking. Kite surfing. How many years ago? Mm, five. Five? Yeah. I started probably also like three, four, five, probably. I didn't do it for the last two years, but it's crazy sport. Do you like I it? Love it. Yeah? I love it. Do, do you see some connections between entrepreneurship and... Completely. Kite? Completely. Uh, you know, kiteboarding is one of the most free sports. You know, I, uh, the way I describe it for people who have done wakeboarding yeah. is I describe it like this. It's like wakeboarding, only you're in control of the boat mm. and the boat can fly. Yeah, wow. Yeah. And that's how I describe Great kiteboarding. Metaphor. And it's like, you know, when I'm at home, I can go anywhere. It's like I just have this incredible amount of freedom when I'm kiting. And, and it's also, for, I'm quite introverted. So, you know, when I'm out in the world and I'm speaking and I have to be in this sort of uh, extroverted energy, but then all of a sudden when I get, um, you know, all of a sudden when I get there and I get out on the water, it's just me and the water. Yeah, and I, I call kite surfing active meditation. It is very active meditation. It is. I injured my shoulder and I hope um, I will be able to, to, to kite surf again. Well, if you come to Cabarete, uh, I know a guy, he's a, um, he came and spoke at our uh, Wild Fest conference that we had earlier this year. And he's, I think, if I remember correctly, he's a five-time Olympian with, and with medals. He's an incredibly interesting guy, but he now does some really great work around um, fascia realignment. And, and I, I would be very surprised if he couldn't give you a lot of help. Wow. So yeah, if you come to Cabarete, I'll hook you up. I did some kite surfing in. I did some kite surfing in. You know, where in Punta Cana. Mm, mm. It was not great wind, but it was nice. No, Cabarete is. You know, where it's you flat want to go. water. 
I, I had my first lessons of kite surfing in Cape Verde. You know Cape Verde? Yeah, yeah. It's two big waves, so it was not great experience. Well, Cabrete, July, August. July, August. The, the, uh -huh. see, I mean, it's wind all year, really, yeah, except yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. October. But uh, July, August, you're talking, uh, you know, like 15 to 25 knots yeah. every day, pretty much. Wow, that's nice. Uh, I have another question about the school system. You mentioned uh, the, the, the school system. Now you have a two years old daughter. I have six, seven. You are here in Tallinn with Mind Valley. Uh, you like their concept of learning uh, in different environment and everything. So how do you see yourself in 14 maybe years? Your daughter will be 16 and she has to decide. I so think, do you, think, do I you think believe in the traditional school system? There's very little point in thinking about it. Yeah. The, the, the pace of change is happening so quickly today that we have no idea what school is going to look like in five years. We just don't know. Uh, um, if, even I in hope my they son, will not look the same. I hope, I hope, well, they won't. They already don't. Uh, you yeah, know, they're already yeah, changing. Yeah. It, it, my son uh, did some homeschooling when he was very small, and then he did more homeschooling later. And the change in homeschooling was at first it was books, then it was like a website, then it was group classes on the internet. How far is it before it's a hologram? You know, I, who knows? But at this point, my view is that my job is to, my job is to raise a confident, independent woman. That's my job. My job is to do my best to facilitate the growth of a confident, independent woman. And, and so what does that mean? It means preparing her for what's coming. And the challenge is none of us know what's coming. We don't know. How about this? My son owns a car. My daughter might never have a driver's license. By the time she's old enough, we, we might not be driving cars anymore. In fact, we might be flying private vehicles mm -hmm. in many yeah, cases. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, so at this stage, guess what she needs to train for? The job she might do in the future probably doesn't even exist. Yeah, yeah. So how do I educate her? You know what? Common sense, life skills, communication capacity, mm -hmm. creativity, self-expression. Mm -hmm. Those are the skills that I want her to have. And frankly, those are the skills that they destroy in school. Mm -hmm. So I'm not really that big a fan of her going to a traditional mm -hmm. school. Mm -hmm. Me neither. Uh, you are very big into the nutri nutrition. So what do you eat? Like what, what diet? Yeah, what, what, what kind of food do you eat? Like do you have any special Diet like now it's popular ketogenic diet. Or no, no keto. Look, look. I, we can have, we could spend hours on this. I, I'm going to put this in the simplest sense of all, and that is that um, you know the the diet fad world is just about as dangerous as the pharmaceutical world. Yeah, yeah. They're, 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 neither one of them is really serving people. And uh, you know, for example, the ketogenic diet. Well, there are some health benefits to being in a ketogenic state, but it's a seasonal state. It's a state that our ancestors would go into for periods of time. They wouldn't live like that. They wouldn't live like that all the time. And so, what happens in the diet world is these fads of oh, this thing works, so I'm going to live like that forever. My view is that every species on Earth evolved an optimal diet for its existence. Every species. Elephants eat you know, 200 kilograms of grass, bark, and fruit every day on some seasonal rotation. They drink 70 liters of water every day. That's their diet. That's what they're supposed to do. And if you let them do that, they're healthy. If you, don't, if you take them out of nature and put them in a zoo and feed them hay, they die in seven years. Like a, they need to be on their diet. And uh, uh, the leaf cutter ant, you'd be surprised, but it doesn't eat leaves. 
It goes and collects leaves, it brings them home, it composts them, it farms aphids. They're, they're agriculturalists. They have a very specific and, and, and calculated diet. And my, my belief is that humans are the same and that you know, fundamentally there is a homo sapien diet. And we know what it is. There's no question about this. We know that humans have for millions of years been eating a seasonal rotation of plants uh, the fruits and vegetables and, 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 and nuts and so on, and, uh, and a seasonal rotational of meats and eggs and, 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 and fish and that sort of stuff. We know that. And, and we have not for hundreds of thousands of years been eating refined sugar or dairy products or wheat or pesticides or glyphosate or any of those things. And so to the degree that we eat the things that we're supposed to eat, we're gonna be healthier. Mm -hmm. To the degree that we avoid the things that are damaging our body, we're gonna be healthier. And my view is, is that it's not about living forever. Sure, I think we have some real capacity to extend our lives mm -hmm. by eating properly and exercising properly. But what I'm more concerned with than extending my life is making sure that every year counts. Mm -hmm. And I watched my grandparents, they were old when I met them and they were old when they passed away and they were old every year in the middle. And you know why? Because they were moving slowly, they were constrained, mm -hmm. they, they were aging in the way that now it doesn't have to be that way. You know, they, they say 70 is the new 50. Hell no, I think 60 is the new 30. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I move around today in a way that I, I feel physically more powerful and stronger than I did in my mm -hmm. 30s. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I'm not saying it'll be like that forever, but I'm saying my quality of life is important to me. And that, the, that feeling strong, mm -hmm. feeling healthy, feeling flexible, could, no food, no junk food could taste good enough to make me want to give that up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yes, I'm into nutrition. Great, what is the Wild Fit? WildFit is a project. company that I created exactly yeah, with yeah, this in yeah. mind, and that was that I, 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 I think these days, um, one of the best paths to innovation is having a uh, diverse set of interests. Mm -hmm. uh, the education system as it works today takes children that had, children are born with a diverse sense of interest, and then we'd send them to school and go, now you should focus on math and English mm -hmm. and physics and this and history and whatever. And then we take them to university and we go, now, well, you weren't so good at math, so only focus on literature, or only focus on the arts, or only focus on medicine or whatever. And we, mm -hmm. the education system is all about narrowing people's focus. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that's a shame because some of the greatest innovations ever have come when somebody's had two divergent interests that have, that have intersected. And so in my case, that came along where I, because my grandfather had been a quite famous uh, zoologist, archeologist who had discovered a very old, at the time, the oldest homo sapiens skull in history, almost 300,000 years old. Uh, I was very fascinated by Middle Stone Age Southern African archeology. span I was interested in that. I didn't know that that would matter. I was just interested in, in the way kids are interested in stuff. Mm -hmm. And you know, I was also really fascinated by why I could spend almost 10 years visiting doctors to solve some major health problems I had and none of it helped. None of the pills helped, none of the injections helped, none of the creams helped, none of the inhalers helped. Everything they gave me didn't help and yet I, here I was still sick. And one day I changed my food and 30 days later all my symptoms were gone. So now I became really puzzled about the medical industry. I asked my doctor, how long did you go to medical school? He says six years. And I said, and how much time did you spend spending food? None. That blew my mind. I mean, I'm 21 years old. I couldn't imagine that you could go to school for six years studying medicine, medicine, that's the key, yeah, medicine, and not studying medicine. food. And so that became, now I became really curious about the food industry and the medical industry. So again, I've got this powerful curiosity about archaeology, anthropology. Then I've got this really strong curiosity about food and what we really should be eating and the way the medical industry works. And then one more thing happened. And that was that I went to my first Tony Robbins seminar. Mm -hmm. And Did I you? noticed that it was different. 
What I mean is, is that I'd been in sales before and I'd seen motivational speakers, inspirational speakers, but you know what? You'd feel good, but the next day you'd be the same person you were before you went to the seminar. They didn't, it didn't, it, but I went to see Tony and the next Monday I was different. I was making more sales calls. I was making them more effectively. I was making different decisions. It was like he had spoken in a way that helped me to make permanent change decisions without effort. And so I became really fascinated with behavioral change psychology. Like, how do you stimulate actual changes in behavior in people? And then one day, about five years ago, all three of these interests crashed together. And that gave birth to WildFit. And that's why WildFit is so incredibly effective. I mean, look, there are a lot of great diet programs. I think, frankly, I think Lauren Cordain, who created the Paleo Diet, has done more to improve the health of humans than anybody else on Earth. I think he should get a prize from the Nobel Committee for what he created there. The challenge is, is that um, most people don't have the willpower to follow a program, even if it is fantastic. So they can come along with the South Beach diet or the this diet or the Bulletproof diet, or they can come along with all kinds of different diets. And all of them have something about them that's interesting. But the fact is that if people don't, if, if, if they're relying on willpower, they're going to give up. And so what we had to do is find out how to get people to not have to use willpower, to actually change their behavior, to make it so that by the time the program was done, they didn't want to eat the dysfunctional food anymore, and that they wanted to eat the healthy foods that they never used to think they liked. And by changing that, we create permanent change for them instead of changing for this mm, season. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for a couple of months. That they, lose, that they lose some weight and then yeah. they're back Put again. Put it right back on. Yeah. How many people you have on the team right now? Like your, your, coaching, your coaching, speaking. I yeah. actually don't know. Um, I, I don't manage the company myself. I would say about 20, 25 or something like that. I don't even know all of them because they're all over the planet. Uh -huh. So you are outsourcing everything? No, we, we have a, a core team in Canada, in Calgary, um, and they work from the core central office. But then we've got, uh, you know, we've got, some, uh, we've got at least one person in, no, we have two people in London. We have some people in the United States, uh, you know, an outsourcer in the Philippines. So we have a group of, you know, there's a variety of people around the world. And then, of course, we've got the ex fully external people, like the various promoters we work with. Like my favorite promoter that, that I work with is uh, Edu Academia, actually, funny enough, based here in Tallinn. I've worked with many promoters around the world, and Edu Academia runs the best events, the most organized, takes the best care of me. Um, you know, Mind Valley is my by far my favorite publisher. I, you know, they've done more to help us spread the word of WildFit around the planet than anybody has, and they do everything at a very high level. Um, and, and so our team is kind of comprised of our internal team and then our external partners. What advice would you give to me right now? I'm at the point that I want to grow internationally. I'm a well-known speaker in Balkan area, Southern Eastern Europe, uh, Russian-speaking countries. I own the market. But what about international market, like English-speaking market? Like I would do very much the same things you did in your market. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of times, I, and, you know, I, 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 I do a lot of training of people in uh, communication, public speaking, and that sort of thing. And what happens a lot of times is that people will feel like they, because maybe they, their English isn't as good as they want it to be, or their accent is too strong or whatever, that they think that's going to hurt them. But what I want to remind you is that human beings are very inclined to look for novel information to come from far away. You know, I think that in the Christian Bible, there's some reference uh, about Jesus where they say that the prophet is rarely recognized at home. Mm -hmm. In other words, mm -hmm. when Jesus was at home, people just treated him like, oh, it's Jesus again. <laughs> but then when he left home, he yeah, was yeah. Jesus. And, um, and I think there's something very powerful in that idea. The other thing to consider is that 
in a much earlier version of society, if you traveled more than 30 miles away from your village, you were in danger of being killed by the other people. Like there, people were very, very tribal. Unfortunately, I feel like the world is going more tribal again. Now, now Britain is gonna leave and we're gonna have Donald Trump doing this and that and yeah. we're gonna go back to this more tribal thinking. But back then it was so tribal that if you even walked, if you even walked 50 kilometers away from your home area, you were in danger of another tribe killing you. Now we live in a world where I can land in this previously Soviet area. I mean, I'm in Estonia, right? Yeah, yeah. Now I can walk in with a little booklet that has my picture in it and just show the picture and I can walk in and nobody tries to kill me and they let me walk around freely. So we live in a different world. Between those two worlds, there was this very primitive and now this. Between them, there was a world where people took a risk and they traveled when it was dangerous, but they took knowledge with them. Marco Polo, mm -hmm. you know, they, they go and they travel to far lands and they pick up new information mm -hmm. and then they bring that information to this new place. And I think that if you really consider that some of the biggest technological, sociological changes have come about because somebody from afar brought mm -hmm. them. And so I think humans still have a very strong inclination or instinct toward wanting to learn from somebody who's from far away mm -hmm. because they're going to bring ideas that haven't already been discussed where they are. And so I would look at it from your perspective that there are going to be things that you understand. There's going to be experiences that you've had. There's going to be ideas that you've addressed that people in, in some of the English-speaking mm -hmm. you might want to go to haven't had those experiences. Mm -hmm. And so instead of thinking like, wow, maybe it's a bad thing that, mm -hmm. I, that I have a, an accent from far away. You go, nope, that's part of my brand. Mm -hmm. it's, it's sexy, <laughs> it makes me unique, it makes me interesting. That's great, great metaphor, a new belief to create. I think it is, I, you know, I, this is a silly example. I don't know, are you familiar with Yakov Smirnov? He, he was a, uh, uh, he, he, he um, uh, immigrated to the United States um, from, the Soviet Union in, in very long ago, yeah. and he came to America and became a stand-up comedian. And he has a very strong Russian accent, you know, <laughs> and he talks English, and, and he turned it into his brand. And, and, and he delivered value, and he, and he did business well, and he became very, very famous. And many other comedians have said, oh, with that accent, you know, it's not gonna really work. No, it worked very, very, very well. He's, and by the way, he's, he's a friend of mine. He's a very, very good guy as well. I think that helps. Yeah, that helps for sure. What advice would you give to somebody that is now 20 years old, like your son? What advice? You know, it's, it's, not maybe, it's, it's not easy to give the advice to your boy, but to somebody else. I think there's two big ones. The one, I think I finally have my son on this one. It's taken some years. Mm -hmm. But the first one is, your happiness is an internally created thing and is not controlled by the external world. Mm. And I remember saying this to him because one day he goes, Dad, you're making me angry. Mm -hmm. And I said, actually, no, I'm not. I'm saying things. You don't like what I'm saying. You're creating a meaning and then you are making yourself angry about what I said. That just makes me more angry, <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and, uh, and so, um, but I think that over time he's begun to appreciate or understand what I really mean by that. And that is that, you know, uh, we really are responsible for our state of mind. We really are responsible for our emotions and the external world isn't. And I remember at one point after I bought that movie studio, I told you about it, it was the most difficult time. It looked like I was gonna lose everything. It looked like everybody's gonna lose their jobs. And I was constantly afraid. I said to my wife one day, I can't live like this anymore. We're not happy. We're waiting for something else to make us happy. I said, that's it, we're done. Now we're happy. I don't care what happens anymore, we're happy. First thing we have to understand is how bad can this really get? So we played it out. We said, wow, it can only get this bad. I mean, that's bad, but we're still alive. 
You know, Wayne Dyer used to say, worst case scenario, you go to the grocery store and you can steal grapes. Yes. You're going to be okay, you know? <laughs> and, and I said, well, you know, we're going to be okay. And then from there, I said, that's it. Let's be happy. Well, we decided, we made a decision and we started being happy. We started laughing and playing and, 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 and you know, about six weeks later, we landed a contract to do Pirates of the Caribbean and then we landed a contract to do Elysium. We landed another contract to do, I think it was Iron Man 2. And you know what's fascinating about all that? What I'm so grateful for is that we found happiness before the movie contracts. Mm. Because if we had been depressed or upset or worried and then the movie contracts came in, then the contracts would have come in and we're like, yeah, now we can be happy. No, because then, you're gonna, then your happiness is always gonna be controlled by somebody else. So that would be the first thing I'd wanna teach to any 20 year old at this point. And then the second thing is, which is quite related, mm -hmm. is that live each day without all the fear. Like, it, it, there's this really beautiful movie, I, um, I can't think of the name of it now, it had Bill Nye in it, and it, the idea of the movie was that the, the men in the, in the movie had a genetic ability to travel through time. It was like not, it was more of a romantic comedy, but with a little bit of this time travel mm -hmm. twist to it. But there was a really important moment in the movie where he says, you know what I, what I, what I, I do is I go back and I live the day, and I see that I survived. And then I go back and live the day properly without the fear, without the anxiety. It's a strong one. I think that's a very important thing. You know, we walk around with all this social anxiety and economic anxiety and health anxiety and government anxiety. And what if instead you just woke up in the morning and said, hey, I have faith. And I don't mean faith in some spirit in the sky. If people can have that faith, that's fine too. But I think every major religion in the world talks about faith. And I think what those religions have done is co-opted faith and, and said, now you should have faith in this God. And I'm saying that I think any God would tell you, yeah, you can have faith in me if you like, but the first thing you have to do is have faith in yourself and your life in general. Mm -hmm. And if you wake up in the morning with a sense of faith, if you wake up in the morning and you go, even the, even the yucky stuff of today serves me, then I think that sets you up for a better day. So you're convinced that happiness become, uh, comes before success? I think happiness becomes, I mean, look, success without happiness is not, no, success. No, not success. I yeah. think there was, there was something I wrote in a magazine I used to publish many years ago, and one day I saw it circulating around the internet. It was like, it was my definition of success. And it was like my, I, I think the way I defined it was that I think success is most easily measured mm -hmm. by the number of days that you're truly happy. It's not the car you drive, it's not the money you have, it's not the anything else. It's if you have two people and one is broke and the other one's a billionaire, but the one who's broke is happy 300 days of the year and the other one is happy 10 days of the year, I'm going with the broke guy as the successful one. So I don't think it's that if you're happy, then you can be successful. I'd say if you're happy, then you are successful mm. now. Mm. Great one. Eric, thank you very much. I wish you many happy days with your to your old daughter and your wife and your uh, boy. And I hope to meet you soon. I'm sure we will. Thanks yeah. very much for having yeah. me. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. If you want more success tips, motivational stories, personal growth advice, incredible personal stories, and other useful life tips, follow me on social media. You can find me as Smilion Mori on Facebook and Instagram and Smilion Mori Warrior Family on YouTube. If you are in the MLM industry, visit my website smillionmori.com and start your six-figure business.